Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this evening we are in verses 14 through 19. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that there is the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Lord, We love your word and it's because of our love for you that we love it. And so we ask as we open up this book with all of these wonderful truths that we know have come from your mind, Lord. Help us to, as it were, think through these thoughts that you have laid out for us this evening. Lord, we want to know you better. We want to love you more. We want to understand what you would have for us as a people, as a church, as believers. And may we follow you all the days of our lives. To this end, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, this is one of those places where we just jump in, remind them of these things. And the first question is, what things? <laughs> what things are we supposed to, or is Timothy supposed to be reminding? And who is the them? Remind them of these things. So let's go back and look at what we looked at in the beginning of 1 Timothy 2 and answer both of those questions. First of all, who's them? Who is Paul telling Timothy to remind what? Well, verse 1 of chapter 2. You then, my child, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I'd love to stop there and preach through that again. Oh, that's just so good. But let's move on. And what you have heard from me, so my child Timothy, what you've heard from Paul the Apostle, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Now, there's nobody, there's no other group of people that comes up between here and verse 14 that we would assume or we would be keyed into who the them is. So it's faithful men. Paul saying to remind these faithful men of these things. Well, what are the things? Well, it's all the things that we looked at here. That they should... Be able to teach others also. They should share in the sufferings of Christ like a soldier, like an athlete, like a hardworking farmer. 
They should remember Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in the gospel, for which he's suffering. They should endure everything for the sake of the elect, like Paul does, so that those who are elect may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus for eternal glory, and remind them of this wonderful, trustworthy saying, if we've died with Christ, we will live with him. If we endure with Christ, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So remind them of these things. It's one of these truths. Peter, Peter I think it's in 1 Peter. I could be wrong now that I'm questioning myself. Peter says it somewhere. Let's go with that. He says, I, I'm going to continue to remind you of these foundational gospel truths, even though you know them and are established in them. So even though they already understand the truths, and not just understand in an intellectual way, but it has become the very foundation of their faith, their thought, their life, their everything that they are, the warp and woof of their existence. Peter says, I'm still going to continue to remind you of these things. The reason is, is because these are the profitable truths. These are the things we need to hear over and over and over and over and over again. These are the very words of life. So as we read through 1 Timothy, pardon me, 2 Timothy 2, there's nothing profound really in it. There's nothing ultra remarkable, right? You find very few books that are like, ooh, the key, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 13, right? You don't find that. Because if we read through these things, it's one of those sections where you read through and you go, yeah. Okay, yeah. But you see, those are the foundation. These truths about the gospel. Which is what he is telling Timothy to entrust to faithful men. Because listen, what's going to build any Christian up is the truths of the gospel. The gospel over and over and over again. You need it today as much as you needed it the day you were born again. So we continue to hear this over and over and over. We need to be regularly and constantly being pointed back to Jesus. Because if we don't, guess who we're going to focus on? Ourselves. (laughs) We're going to focus on us. And that's not going to be profitable. Which is the problem at the end of this section we're looking at. These guys have focused on their own intellect, their own thinking, and their own thoughts have led them astray. So he's telling them, he's telling Timothy, remind these young faithful men who are going to continue to teach the word of God the truth of the gospel so much that that's where they find themselves uh, by default going to. Charge, remind them of these things And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins hearers. Charge them, first of all, before God. A a commendation. I want to take 
the truths of the gospel and charge you with them before God Almighty. If you're going to teach the word of God, if I'm going to do what it says here and entrust faithful men with the truth of the Bible, then the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to say that before God Almighty, this is the message to preach. And you're accountable to God, not to anybody else. Well, maybe to other people, but most importantly to God. I'm certainly accountable to the congregation. And if I start preaching error, you should fire me. You should be ready and quick to not kick me out the door. Don't let me come back and look to other faithful men to preach you the word of God, to preach you the gospel. You absolutely should be ready to do that. Because my charge before God is to preach his word to you. So yes, okay, I am accountable to the congregation as well. But ultimately to God. I have to stand before God Almighty one day, right? James 3 is pretty clear. Don't let many of you become teachers because those who do become teachers are going to endure a stricter judgment. You know, in Corinthians, there's that passage where it says that, you know, on that day you will pass through the fire and what you've done for the Lord will be determined whether it's gems or gold or precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble, and it will be burnt up on that day. If you read that context, it's talking about ministry. It's not talking about just the everyday life of the Christian. It's talking about those who minister the word of God, who minister faithfully before God in in his service. So I'm going to be judged one day before the Lord. I'm going to have to give an account of the words that come out of my mouth as I have preached from God's pulpit and preached his word. And so when I'm instructing other people to preach God's word, I want that same weightiness, that same feel of responsibility, that gravity that that grips you. I want, Fred's going to preach for me in a few weeks, I want when Fred gets up here, him to be kind of nervous. Not because he's, oh, I might get it wrong, I might screw it up. I know him. He's going to study well and he's going to preach a banger. I know. But it's becoming, it's coming before God and his people with God's words, what gives you the butterflies, what gives me nerves every single time I get up here to preach. Not because I think I'm going to say something, you know, what, this is a funny little anecdote. I know you're not here to hear him, but I'm going to give you one anyways. I remember the very first time I ever preached here in Chico, I was given the opportunity on a Wednesday night to preach a Bible study, and I was so, so, so afraid. And the only thing I could think of was, don't say Satan is good. (laughs) I don't know why that was the one thing, but that was like in my mind, just like I was so afraid I was going to screw up and say that, right? Well, we, okay, that's a silly story, but we don't want to say wrong things. We want to get God's word right. So we're charged before God. But what we're charged before God specifically here in this passage to do is to not quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Now, it's, it's one thing for good, Bible-believing, loving Jesus Christians To look at a text and debate it and discuss it 
and wrestle with it and meditate on it and try to come to the truth of it. Notice that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is quarreling, going to war against somebody else over words which doesn't do any good. And it's complemented with the explanation in verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble, for it leads people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. You see, they complement one another. They're upsetting the faith of some. They only ruin the hearers. Spreads like gangrene and more ungodliness doesn't do any good. So this quarreling about words, which I, I've been told before by, I'm sure, well-intentioned pastors, that you should never debate about the Bible. You should listen from what's preached from the pulpit and just accept it. Well, there's an element of truth to be had there, but certainly we are supposed to be thinking about the things that we do hear preached from the Word of God, preached from the pulpit. This quarreling here isn't about, you know, us getting together and having a Bible study and trying to figure out, well, what is, you know, the regulative principle of worship? And, and how are we supposed to worship in the context of the church? Here we are as a Baptist group sitting in a building that's clearly not Baptist <laughs> with crucifixes and with stages of the cross and a baptismal fount for the babies in the back and holy water when you walk in and all that. Now, we can debate all of these things. Are these forms of worship that we should be having, using, adopting according to our practices or rejecting? We want to go to the scriptures and see what's there. We want to go to the scriptures and see is this what, <clears throat> how we're supposed to be worshiping. With our Anglican brothers here, and they are brothers here, we would love to discuss these truths and go back and forth with them. But in doing that, what we're seeking to do is worship God more rightly. And in doing that, we're becoming more exacting in our understanding of God. So to do that isn't ruining the hearers. It isn't upsetting the faith of some. Well, maybe some people have a very hard time with debate. And if you do, you shouldn't enter into it. And those who do enjoy a good, lively theological discussion should be wise and weary about where you have those particular discussions and with who you have them with. So, when we do discuss these things, we want to come to a better understanding of the Word of God. But what's happening here about the quarreling of words and the irreverent babble is that these are thoughts that are coming not from the Word of God itself, which is why verse 15 is so important. Okay, because verse 15 is contrasting the quarrelsome words with the irreverent babble for the very Word of God itself, the Scriptures. It's saying, avoid all of these other kinds of extracurricular debates and fights about thoughts of spirituality or whatnot, and focus instead on the Word of God. So he says to Timothy, don't quarrel about all of this other stuff because it doesn't do good and ruins those who hear. Instead, you 
Present yourself to God as one appointed, a worker that has no need to be ashamed because he can rightly handle the word of truth. He can rightly handle the word of truth. So you see the contrast between the word of truth, the quarrelsome words, and the irreverent babble. So we're not to quarrel about those things which does no good, but instead we're to present ourselves to God as to one who is approved. Timothy is to take the time to do the hard work and read and study the word of God. The word of God, I'm going to be perfectly honest, there's lots of places that are not easy. There's lots of passages that are weighty and that are difficult. Peter said at the end of 2 Peter, he said that Paul's writings were difficult to understand in certain places. And there were people who twisted Paul's words and manipulated Paul's words to their own end. There's lots of places like that. There's debate over those kind of things. Matthew 24 is a great example. In fact, in Matthew 24, there's a passage where Jesus talks about how that there are going to come false teachers that are going to rise up from within the church. Verse 11 says, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. In verse 24, it says, False Christ, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so if possible to lead astray even the very elect. Matthew 24 is, you know, one of those difficult passages. People debate about it, disagree about it. It talks about a lot of end times stuff in it. And depending upon whether you're what, pre-millennial or post-millennial or amillennial or pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib, there's a lot of debate that goes on under the rubric of those words. Understanding, well, what is this text actually saying? Well, a good worker, a good minister, a good pastor will study so that he can rightly handle the word of truth. He's not going to import things into the text, which unfortunately I think some of those end time positions do. And he's not going to try to leave some stuff out, which some people do with other texts, like Romans 9. I remember hearing a sermon series one time through the book of Romans, and this pastor went Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, and just skipped right over Romans 9. That's too hard. That's too difficult. I don't want to talk about predestination and the elect. And so they'll skip right over those kinds. There are lots of passages. You get it. There are lots of passages that are like that. But Timothy's called here, and I personally believe any minister of the word of God, whether it's a pastor, an assisting pastor, whether it's a deacon teaching a Sunday school class, whether it's somebody else who's teaching children's church, well, whoever it is, that someone who is ministering the word of God has an obligation to handle the word of truth rightly. And doing it, how am I going to do that? I'm going to do it in such a way that I am presenting myself, my work, my study to God. 
That's what he says. Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is proved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If I treat what I'm doing right here in preaching the word of God as presenting myself, my study, my digging into his word to God rather than just two people that are here, I'm going to be way more likely to be cautious, to be careful, to be studious, to pour in the hard work that needs to be done in handling his word, right? If I'm, I'm no mechanic nor the son of a mechanic, right? So if I were to go and to fix somebody's car, I would want to do it the best I possibly could. I'd find the best YouTube videos that I could, right? And follow it exactly as I could because I have to present that vehicle back to that particular person. It's a silly illustration. I get it. But you understand it. Okay, I'm in the funeral industry. So this week I did a service for some people. And at the end, for the part of the service is we are presenting that deceased loved one to the people who've come there. So it behooves me to make sure that they look as good as they possibly can. And we present them in a way that the family is pleased, that the family is able to grieve rightly, and they're not caught up and distracted by something stupid that I could have avoided ahead of time if I'd just taken care and had been very careful about what I did in my job, right? If that's true just on this, a car and someone who's died, which I don't want to minimize that, but it's definitely far lower down on the rung of importance than preaching God's word. I'm presenting it not to a group of people, although I am, but I'm presenting it ultimately to God. I'm ultimately coming before the Lord and presenting him with my word, pardon me, with his word. So it behooves me, I'm very compelled to study hard, to look at all the relevant texts that I can. I have no excuse that I'm bivocational, right? I can't just come up here on a Sunday and punt because, you know, the week got away from me kind of thing. I might be able to do that with lots of things in my life. And people will accept it, but I can't do that with the word of God. I can't do that with the sermon. I have to do my best to present myself to God as a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. So you, parents, do your best to present yourself to God as somebody who is rightly giving the word of God to your kids. You have friends and you have co-workers. Sometimes we need to be compelled to go and to talk to them and share the gospel with them. Well, if we do it, then we need to be ones who know the word of God well enough so that we can share it with them. Now, granted, if you say you don't, I don't know, that's not a big deal. You just go back and study. Amen, Ben. (laughs) So we do our best. We are a worker who does not need to be ashamed. I... Have come, I'm going to be, I've come out of the pulpit plenty of times and have gone away and just cried myself stupid <laughs> because I just was like, Lord, that was awful. That was a train wreck. Forgive me. God in his grace is always good. God in his grace is always good, but that doesn't give me any 
right to be able to treat it lightly. Instead, what it does is it motivates me more and more and more to read, to study, and to handle the word of God rightly and accurately. But we are to avoid irreverent babble, and we are to avoid quarrelsome words because it does two things. One, it leads people into more and more ungodliness. And number two, it'll spread like gangrene. It's interesting how in the late 1800s, all of a sudden there blew up Seventh-day Adventism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, and all kinds of other cults and isms just exploded on the scene. It was because of irreverent babble and quarrelsome words. What that means is that it was ideas people had, and then they imported those ideas either into the word of God or just made up their own words of God. And it spread, and it spread, and it spread, and it spread, and it spread. We need to avoid these things and teach others to avoid these things. Because it leads to ungodliness and spreads and spreads and spreads. I don't know why it's, you know, tantalizing to people's ears, this kind of thing. I I remember a a minister telling a story about how he was preaching a sermon series and he had put out flyers all over the community. He had, you know, the whole entire city had gotten these flyers come out and hear this series on prophecy come out and hear the prophecy series so they put it out there and they the place was packed the church had never been more filled in the entire history of the building people were standing outside they'd open the windows so people could stand outside and hear through the windows and this guy got up there and he just preached a simple message about christ's second coming the next night there was like a hundred people there Night after that, maybe 70. He said as the week went on, he got to the very end of the week and there was a group about this size. (laughs) The reason is, is because people want their ears tickled. People would rather hear, ooh, the spooky spookies about the scripture. They want to hear man's ideas and thoughts about black helicopters and concentration camps for the Christians instead of hearing about the simple second coming of Jesus Christ, which is what scripture teaches us oh so clearly. And coincidentally is something that this passage speaks about right here, which is why I went there. They've swerved away from the truth, Herminus and Philetus, because they say the resurrection has already happened. It's interesting because that's one of the things that both Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists have in common. That the second coming already happened. Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is holed up in Brooklyn in some little condo there or whatever. I don't know. Seventh-day Adventists, that he's already returned and now he's performing his investigative judgment. But this is not a new heresy. This has been one that's gone throughout church history and you can know that new heresies are going to arise surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the spiritual resurrection, all of these kind of things. See, we don't want to get caught up in all of that kind of stuff. It might sell books. 
It might look really interesting. There might be stacks of them. Well, I guess there's not Christian bookstores really anymore. But I remember you used to be able to walk into the Christian bookstore, whatever big stack of books they had, you knew that was the stack of weirdness. That was the stack of heresy, probably. (laughs) Probably. Maybe they're not all, but a lot of times, more often than not. So you knew to avoid that kind of stuff. We need to avoid it. You know, when I get the Christian book distributors mailer and the, I can start flipping through and it's real obvious which ones are the ones that have all kinds of problems in them. And it's usually the ones they're aggressively promoting, unfortunately. But we need to avoid those things. We need to just, what does the word of God say? And we can rightly discuss it. We can rightly debate it, but we dare not go further than it. Because God's firm foundation stands and it bears this seal. Again, in contrast to Philetus and Hermites, or pardon, Hermites and Philetus, and those who are swerving from the truth, those who are ruined by listening to them, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. We need to ask, does the Lord know us? In light of the text we looked at last week, it says here that I'm in chains, bound as a criminal. The word of God, though, is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The Lord knows those who are his. There on that last day of judgment, Jesus is going to say to some, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But the Lord knows those who are his. He knows them because he died for them. Christ specifically and deliberately with intention, purpose, Foreknowledge and predestination secured salvation for those who are his from eternity past so that when he came and died, the plan that was put into place back then was secured and redemption was accomplished. And now it is only awaiting to be applied as the spirit comes and takes up residence in your life by taking out your heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh to use John's language in John 3, causing you to become born again, right? A passage there in John 3, before 3.16, says that the Spirit blows where it wishes, and you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it goes, just like the wind. That's how people are born again. So that God loved the world in that he sent his only Son so that those who believe in him would have everlasting life. Because he knows who are his. You see, the great demonstration to the world of salvation is that he knows who are his and they're secured and they will believe for eternal life. This firm foundation stands. The Lord knows those who are his. And secondly, as we close, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Faith and holiness go hand in hand. We have to be not only a believing people, but a people who are a holy people. Now, it doesn't mean a 
imposed standard of righteousness that we find fenced around Scripture so that we have laws upon laws upon laws. We want to go to the Scripture and see what does it say and what doesn't it say. My conscience is bound to Scripture. Your conscience is bound to Scripture. But what it says, we got to do. And we do it with zeal, with joy, with passion. When God says in 1 Peter, be holy for I am holy, that's not like an obligation that is too heavy for me to bear. That's, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I don't have that old set of rules and volumes and volumes of obligation to follow like they did when Christ came. They were straining at the gnat, as it were. But we, we depart from iniquity because we love Jesus. I don't want to be like my old self anymore. I want to be more like him. You see, as I present the word of God to you, what should happen is it should give you a taste for the goodness of the Lord because you are his and lead you to desire to depart from iniquity. Not to listen to the quarrelsome words and the irreverent babble that seeks to tickle your ears and tantalize your spiritual feelers, but rather you love Jesus and therefore you want to follow him in his ways. So when the word is preached rightly, when the word is preached accurately, when the word is preached truthfully, the Lord will save his people and they will depart from iniquity because we love God and we want to follow what his word says. It's a simple truth. I mean, verse 19 is a very firm foundation. Verse 19 is a great passage to have written somewhere. You know, I used to, when I was first a Christian, write scripture verses on my shoes and stuff, you know, so I'd remember them. And I still honestly remember a few of them that I did that. So it took. This is a good one to do that with. God's firm foundation stands. The Lord knows who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And believer, if you are his then you know the love of the Lord and you know how compelled and persuaded that makes you to depart from iniquity. Leave sin behind, follow him, love him. Don't quarrel about words, avoid all the irreverent babble. Just stick to what you know is faithful and true. This book right here, the very word of God. Father, we love you and we praise you for your gift of grace and mercy that you've given to us in your son, Jesus. Thank you for calling us and saving us from our sins. Thank you for giving us new life in your name. And we pray, Lord, that with this new life that we have in you, God, that you would give us the strength, the zeal, the passion to live lives where we seek to leave iniquity behind. Pursue holiness. And what holiness is really is becoming more like you, Jesus. As we love you more and know you better, Lord, may we become more like you each and every day. In your name we pray, amen.